I am an avid amateur potter, and I had the joy of spending my vacation this summer in Greece. As a potter, one of the fantastic things about Greece is that you can go to a museum focused on Minoan pottery from 2000 BC, or Mycenaean pottery from 1700, uh, I'm sorry, from 1050 BC, and another focused on the 700 BC time frame, and a final one that is all about classical pottery, which comes from the 600s. Wow. <laughs> all those antiquities. Antiquities is such a lovely word, and one that the Greeks use about their historic stuff. Uh, here, it sounds like a kind of an affected word, antiquities, but there, people will use it uh, very commonly to reflect their ancient culture. And they use it about stuff like pots, buildings, sculptures, all that antiquity that could so easily have been just thrown away. But someone saved these objects. Someone took the time to find the pieces and put them back together when the pots were broken. And now they are so important to understanding the past and appreciating the religions and cultures that were critical to the day-to-day -day lives of Greeks. And to an aspiring potter who just loves the forms. What a wealth. A wealth for all of us, a wealth from the commons to the common person. When I was young, and I was just raised by my dad, so we were a two-person family, my dad and I took a walk on the edge of one of our local rivers here. I was raised in the city, and I think it was the Anacostia, but it might have been the Potomac. We were walking along the edge of the water, actually scrabbling up what to me were giant boulders. They were exciting and challenging for me to climb. It was the best day. My dad, sun, air, a beautiful river, days like the ones we've been having here until today. It was a fall day. And then I did what kids so often do. I fell in the river. Back then, when you fell in that river, you had to go to the emergency room and get a tetanus shot. The water was so polluted they thought it was a good precaution, or maybe my dad just thought it was a good precaution. He was a cautious kind of guy. But the end of my beautiful day by the river was a trip to the emergency room and a shot. The river was for everyone to use, or was it? Sometime later, I heard my dad talking with another family member about something he called the tragedy of the commons. That sounded like a very grown-up idea, and since I didn't know, I think, maybe either of those words at the age that I was, I asked, and as always, he explained it to me. He told me that in England, there used to be an area in many villages that everyone could use but nobody owned an area where everyone could go to collect some firewood or graze their animal. He explained that because no one owned it, no one took care of it. And the tragedy part was that the commons was almost always overused, undercared for, and generally ended up not as a productive piece of land, not helping all the people in that village survive as they should have. 
The concept of overuse and undercare of a commons was developed in the 1830s by British economist William Forrester Lloyd. Back in 1968, which is about when I fell in the river or was learning about uh, this from my dad, American biologist and philosopher Garrett Hardin coined the phrase tragedy of the commons to describe that undercare overuse pattern. At the time my dad was talking to me, because he was my dad, he was giving me a lesson in capitalist ownership. In the importance of someone owning and taking care of a piece of land or a strip of river, ensuring it wouldn't be overused or destroyed. That was his message, but not necessarily the one that I took away. The concept of the tragedy of the commons again came to mind when I lived in India back in the 1970s. Goats are a terrible, terrible for the land, but great for the owner. Their hooves break up helpful clods of soil, so the soil will be blown away or washed away in a storm. They tear food out by the roots instead of trimming it neatly, like a lawnmower or a cow. In some ecosystems, they eat the leaves that fall and might fertilize the soil and protect the roots of plants. In so doing, they leave the soil depleted and the roots exposed to the sun. Once I started making these connections, I thought beyond goats to pears, like some diabolical game of, of bread and butter. Things that we wish didn't go together, but do. Pesticides and bee death, trash in rivers, pollution and air, even fast fashion that just goes in the dump after a few uses. All of those tragedies. But for the person who owns the goat, it is a great thing that they produce milk, and beyond that, they produce goats. They are manageable size. Even a child can herd a goat. They can sit tied up for a long time, and bringing them even a bit of food will sustain them. The family that lived in the rough in that yard of the house next to mine in India had a goat, and I thought to myself, I would too if I was in their situation. But the soil would suffer, the commons would suffer, and yet I thought that I would own a goat if I could in their economically distressed circumstances. But now we get back to the story we told for the kids and all of us. We think, or I think, bread and butter, peanut butter and jelly, because habit has taught us that they go together. If they, or at least in this case, the words tragedy and commons don't go together. What if they don't have to go together? What if pollution and water didn't pair up? What if the words global and climate change didn't match up? What if we could reframe those pairings to come out with a different outcome, an outcome that gives us health? in the commons. I'm reading The Wealth of the Commons, A World Beyond Market and State by Devin, David Bollier and Silky Helfrich. The book, whole book is about how to reframe the discussion and the definition of the commons and who takes care of those areas, where who will take care of those areas that all of us could use but nobody owns. 
I'm calling that the valley over there where no one lives, or at least none of us. How do we take care of it? They say we want to drive on a good road network without congestion, but object to having major roads pass by our front doors. We want environmentally friendly energy to replace coal power, but we object to windmills marring the landscape. We object to fish stocks being depleted, but want to purchase fresh and cheap fish. Different needs and goals conflict with one another, and one that can mobilize the most market and political power will prevail. First, we create a fait accompli, and then we have to suffer the consequences. But are there other ways to frame this problem? For instance, they talk about Wikipedia. You know, the crowdsourced encyclopedia that I personally rely on for quick questions about art, history, politics, more. It's amazing, and it is a new commons, one that we are building up but not tearing down. And this book speaks about rock climbers. My godson is a rock climber. Any rock climbers out there? Okay, let me tell you about it. Climbers take care of the roots, provide for stable anchors that prevent dangerous falls, draw sketches of the roots and give them creative names. There are no property rights or patents. On the contrary, the most accomplished climbers are constantly inventing new routes and inviting everybody to test their skills on them. An important rule is don't leave footsteps. Allow future climbers to discover the route in the same condition in which you discovered it. Some of these routes are now world famous. For example, the nose on El Capitan in California's Yosemite National Park. Thousands of years from now, when the climbers have long died out, these rock formations and some iron pythons will remain, but then they will no longer be commons, says this book, because the commons is the social relationship, the sport of rock climbing, not the resource itself, not the rock, no climbing and no commons. There is no commons without commoning. The rock climbers define commons as this other thing, not the rock or the mountain, but the community of users. Can we do that with pollution, CO2 emissions leading to climate change, and with so much more? Can we define us as the commons? Can we define the water and air of this world as commons and see how they are sacred? As I was working on this sermon, Greta Thunberg was very much in the news, and it is tempting to name her as the future. Greta, Sophia Geiger, who grew up in my home congregation and who I've known since she could hardly walk, someone, uh, or Kaja Kokar, or any of the other youth working on the Fridays for the Future campaign. Surely these people are the hopes embodied, the future and the hope. But no, yes. They make me hopeful, but they have also explicitly asked adults not to use them as a symbol of hopefulness. 
particularly not as a symbol that lets us grown-ups off the hook for really doing something. This isn't about the conviction that it'll be okay. We can't say, Greta, make me help hopeful, when the youth are asking us to join them in their despair. Instead, we have to use hope as an active verb, a do-something-about-it verb. In the words of Rebecca Solnit, Hope is not a lottery ticket you can sit on the sofa and clutch feeling lucky. It is an axe you break down doors with in an emergency. Hope should shove you out the door because it will take everything you have to steer the future away from endless war, from the annihilation of the earth's treasures and the grinding down of the poor and marginal. To hope is to give yourself to the future and that commitment to the future is what makes the present inhabitable. In this sense, David Orr tells us, hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. Maybe instead of hope, we should be using the words fortitude, determination, endurance, conviction, and action. Active words, do-something words, to remind us about all that is in the common and what we need to do to return it to its healthy state. Maybe instead of thinking about the commons as over there, the valley beyond the hill, we should look at our places as sacred and worth protecting and worth fighting for. For me, hope is in the here and now, the way we show up, the presence and the witness we have to offer one another, the building of connections and collaborations so that we make critical changes and can hold one another through difficult work ahead. For ourselves, but more for our children and their children, we must protect our common. To do so is a fundamental extension of morality. And one last story. Dan in Oakland, California, had a problem. There was a sort of an island outside of his door. That wasn't the problem. He lived on a kind of a busy street, and there was one of those traffic things that points you that way and that way and makes certain that there are no accidents there. And that was not his problem. The problem was that somehow it had become the neighborhood large item trash dump. Beds, sofas, dressers, Refrigerators would all show up each morning as he opened his door. Sometimes there would be stuff eight feet high on the small common space outside his door, and it was driving Dan crazy. He hated seeing the trash, calling the sanitation department to have it cleared away, and then have it all happen again. Finally, he and his partner came up with an inspiration. They weren't Buddhists. In fact, I think they were secular humanists in our terminology. But they were looking for something to change the energy on that island. They thought and thought and came up with the idea of putting a smallish plaster, maybe plastic, Buddha on that common ground. They got it at Home Depot. They didn't spend much on it. They had to figure out how to keep it from being stolen, so they glued a cement block to the bottom that they buried in the ground. There it was, a Buddha, a sacred object in some cultures and put there just to keep the trash down. 
And one day, he walked out of his front door and saw that someone had put an orange next to it in a ritual offering, a ritual gift to the Buddha on the island. And then in a few days, he came out and someone was burning incense there. Later, a Kuan Yin showed up and then someone painted the Buddha a really nice, careful job. And someone put up an awning over the Buddha and then a building. More and more offerings, more and more incense, people attending this now holy place. Eventually, there were several buildings. Oh, and crime was down in the neighborhood by 85% over five years. Wow. 82%. And around the corner, another small Buddha showed up. And it has an orange by it most mornings. The space the Buddha was in was deemed sacred. The island was deemed sacred. The common was claimed as sacred. What would it be if we lived in a world where the common, like Dan's small island, was not only protected, but honored and deemed sacred? If the neighbors set out to make beautiful and protect it, as any of us would, some place we deem sacred, what we do, what would we do if we saw the common as sacred and chose to care for it as Dan's neighbors care for the Buddha in that island? Blessed be. Ashe and amen.